Good morning, everyone. My name's Dave, and this is Sam with me, and we're going to read the Bible to you this morning. Uh, not just to you, but with you. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, uh, note the irony, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and uh, we're reading from verses 1 to 23. Uh, you'll find that on page 225 if you've got one of the blue church Bibles. Uh, otherwise, if you're on your phone, it's got a search function and all those good sort of things. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out, up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil 
in the eyes of the Lord. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Amen. Is that what you were expecting when you rocked up at church this morning, a reading like that? Uh, it's pretty full on, lots of things going on there. Before we just dig into it though, I just want to give you some heads up. Uh, next week we're starting a new term and a new series, uh, which we're calling A Dangerous Vision. And we're talking about church and uh, what God's plan is for the church as outlined in the New Testament and the journey we're on trying to align ourselves with uh, what Jesus has planned for us. And it is a dangerous vision of what he's got for us. We're going to spend about six weeks on that, uh, starting from next week. So I'm just uh, letting you, uh, yeah, just uh, know where we're going with that. But in a sense, this passage we're looking at this morning is setting us up for that because this is a dangerous passage. It's a very uh, controversial passage, one that's uh, often brought up when people are wrestling with uh, who God is. But how about I pray first that God might speak to us and give us wisdom on how to understand it, but also understand him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for uh, being a loving God. We've sung about you this morning, about your grace upon us. But when we're challenged by passages like this and how you deal with people, we're often um, maybe a bit puzzled. Uh, But Lord, we, we long to know you better. We long to know how you think and why you think the way you do. So uh, hopefully we can draw nearer to you. So Lord, we pray that you'd give us your understanding this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an interesting time we live in. At the moment, uh, Israel Folau has put a lot of things on the agenda through his social media account, talking about uh, a number of things in his posts, uh, bringing up a number of scriptural verses. Uh, but one of the main things he's brought up is the idea that God will judge the world. He'll judge everyone. Now, this has been uh, pushed back a lot from our community, particularly people who uh, go, you know, he shouldn't be saying that stuff. That's his God. Don't be sharing his message with us. But another response that's been put out there by a lot of the media is the response to, hang on, he's talking about this particular God, and he's quoting God out of the Bible, but yet that's not the God I actually want to follow. It was, I've heard a number of times through uh, commentators, whether it's been on radio or TV, they say, but the God I follow is a God of love. This is not the God I follow. So they want the idea of God, they've got the picture of idea of God, but a God that judges people and condemns people, that's not the God I want to associate with. So they withdraw from that. But it's put a lot of questions on the, on the agenda of lots of conversations. We live in a world that wants peace 
And so that means if we want peace with everybody around us, we want everybody to live together, we want tolerance, we don't want people to be judgmental, we want people just to live and let live in a sense. So when anybody mentions judgment and there's a God that's going to bring down judgment, it's controversial. See, with this passage, a lot of people bring up, particularly in uh, debates, Christians against non-Christians, they bring up this passage and they ask the question, if God is a loving God, why does He command what is pretty much genocide on a particular nation? And you can't dispute that. When we go back to those uh, first few verses, when he says, uh, God says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did. In verse 3, now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. And you get the emphasis, go and attack them, destroy them, do not spare them, put to death and illicit all men, women, children, infants, and even their pets, their cattle, their sheep, their camels, their donkeys, all of them. I want it wiped out. What is God thinking? Is this the God you want to follow? You know, all of us come here and we sing these nice songs about uh, how Jesus is our Saviour, He's our Lord, that's poured out grace upon me, that God is a God of love. Is this the same God? Is this the God you want to follow? Or if you go, okay, well, this is how God is. How do we defend a God like this to a world that's looking for love? Because how we measure love, this doesn't sound like it's that loving. How do we defend a God like that? Because it feels very uncomfortable. It goes against everything we want to say that God is. We're going to look at this passage, uh, particularly from that angle. We're going to ask three questions. Why does God order the killing of the Amalekites? Why does He... uh, Why all the Amalekite nation everything totally destroyed and a third question how does God's judgment on the Amalekites show us how God uh, how loved we are how does this show God's love is the third question we're going to move through these uh, fairly quickly but why does God order the killing of the Amalekites we need to uh, get our head around what's going on in this passage uh, to, to really understand why God is saying what He is saying. But before we just dig a bit deeper in the history of this, we need to understand that notice Samuel, the prophet, God's man, Saul the king, or even any of the Israelites, they don't see a problem with what God is asking. They don't see the problem that we see. To them, it's like, no, nah, let's go and wipe them out. Why do they do it? There's a uh, guy called Neil Plantinger. Uh, I was reading a bit of his stuff during the week, this, uh, coincidentally, uh, or kind of, about this sort of stuff. And he said something very interesting. He said, the news of God's judgment is good news for people whose lives are full of bad news. When God comes and brings down judgment, it's the people who are suffering bad things to go and come save us, come help us. And he goes on to say, we in our comfortable first world Western society are in danger of asking the wrong questions because he actually says, you know, if you look at world history, we are living in one of the peaceful times in world history, in one of the most peaceful places uh, in time, around the world of all time. And it's easy for us to be in this bubble of going, oh, to bring judgment on something else, on somebody else, is, uh, it's rough. That's not very nice. But yet, if you're living in another part of the world where life is bad, 
or another time when life is bad, you might be saying the exact opposite. Come, Lord, bring judgment. Bring, come and save us. This is why we see the Israelites aren't actually complaining because there's a history with the Amalekites. See, they've been suffering at the hands of the Amalekites. See, there was this time, it was uh, mentioned in the, in the opening verses about what was going on when Israel were coming out of Egypt. And you might know the story of where uh, Israel were captive and put in slavery by the Pharaoh of Egypt. God saved them from that, pulled them through the desert and bring them to the promised land where they're going to have a home, they're going to have peace. But while they're in the desert, going on this journey, something happened. And it's described, uh, you can read it in Exodus uh, 17, or uh, Deuteronomy 25 is another passage that talks about it where uh, Moses is got getting them settled into the promised land. He reflects on what's happened. Where he says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, imagine all that long journey through the desert, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear for God. You know, even in those days there was a protocol if you've if you got a strong army, you take on the other nation's army. You know, men fight men. Don't go behind, take out the women and children like that. But that's what they did. While Israel were tired, they cut them down. They had no fear for God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, this promised land, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from uh, under the heavens like yeah i don't want to know about them you need to destroy them because there's even a little bit more history amalek was uh in the line of esau esau's side of the family there's a lot of stuff going on in genesis but they're kind of the bad side of the family they're jealous of the israelites so they try and take them out at every opportunity they tried in egypt when they're coming out of egypt going through the desert uh there's another story about uh if you're familiar with the story of esther uh, when Israel uh, was captured by the Persians and they were put into captivity, but yet um, King Xerxes was a bit sympathetic to the Israelites, God's people, but his chief man, Haman, uh, wanted to wipe out the Israelites. Again, he wanted to put laws in place that it would wipe out all the Israelites, all God's family. Now, who, who the heck's Haman? Well, he, um, Haman, he... Uh, his grandfather, or his relative, was the king of the Amal Am Amalekites. I knew I'd get that tongue twisted. So he's got a family history. He's basically an Am Amalekite. So he's still trying to persist. I want to wipe out Israel. The Amalekites are bad people. They're always against God's people. They're always against Israel. They're always trying to stop God's plan. And God says, I've had enough. They're bad people. If their mission is to wipe out God's people, these are God's children and you don't mess with God's children. That's the language that the Bible uses. God's the Father God and they're his children. And it's interesting, when we talk, call God the Father and his people, his children, it does evoke a number of different thoughts. I know if, if any of you blokes out there, uh, when you have had your first child or when you've got children now, there's something about having children that does bring out something different in your character. I remember, you know, at first, when you hold your first child, it's an amazing moment to go, God has trusted me with this, this little person. All of a sudden, you become a lot more protective. 
a lot more loving and caring. Don't you touch what's being given to me here. Uh, I was shocked on one response I had to this. Uh, there was a time a number of years ago when our kids were like six or eight years of age. It was late one Friday night. Uh, our bedroom was at the front of the house and I was just watching telly in bed. Kim was out one night. Um, so it was just me and the kids. They were all in bed asleep. And somebody threw a rock through our front window into my bedroom. Like, what do you do at that time? Well, it's like 9, 9.30 at night, and somebody's throwing rocks through your window. Now, my first reaction is, what do I do here? Why are they doing it? But what do I do here? And the thing of, do I protect my kids there in the back room? Do I go and see who's, who, who did it and why they're doing it? So my gut reaction was, actually, I'm protecting my kids by seeing who did it and to chase them away. That's the most protective thing. So... This is not a great sight for your mind, but uh, about 9.30, middle of winter, I remember, I was watching the footy, uh, just wearing my boxer short, shorts, so you get this overweight, middle-aged, very white guy running out at night time, uh, outside, onto the street. What is going on? And I wasn't going to let it go until I saw you know, a kid a few doors up walking around, snooping around somebody else's house. So I went and chased him and caught him, and that would have been a scary enough experience for him, I thought. So I had a chat to him and moved him on uh, and went back home. And once I got back inside, I was like, what was I doing? You know, freezing cold, but I didn't feel the cold. The adrenaline was pumping, but I feel like it could only be described as, you know, that protective nature kicking in. I want to make sure this doesn't happen again. I want to make sure they're moved on. And that's what God is doing. It's what God does. He says... I rescued Egypt out of Israel. Uh, I rescued Israel out of Egypt. I brought them through the desert, and like a father, like his children, you can read the story in Exodus. Israel are very much like their children. They're going on this journey to the promised land, their new home, and they're whinging in the back seat. They've got no food. God gives them food. We've got no water. He gives them water. You know, they're, they're whinging the whole way. But then somebody else comes and attacks them. He's like, he's straight in there. It's like, you don't do that to my people. The Amalekites, you stay away, or else I'm going to come for you. But yet they attacked, and he's going to come for them. You don't mess with my children that way. That's why God was so angry with Saul for not going through with wiping them all out. He was angry at Saul. You let that king go? Why would you do that? You've got all their animals? Why would you do that? They need to be totally wiped out. They've been messing with my family, and you don't mess with my family. See, it's not this fit of out-of-control rage that is going. I'm going to pick on that nation at random. It's, it's this righteous anger. They're messing with my family. They're messing with my plan. So I'm going to deal with them as they deserve. You can't go against God's plans. See, this is the kind of father I want. We don't call Father God just as a term, just that's his name or that's what he wants us to think he's like. He is our Father. When you're a part of the family, he is your Father God who's going to protect you, who cares for you, who'll dive in there and come to your aid. That's what he's like. That's what he's like. When I look at God's uh, actions in this, I realise how weak a father I am because when I chase the kid down, I just let him go. I should have said, come back again, I'll take you down. That's what God was doing here because he's protecting his family. Come back and I'll deal with you. And they just kept coming back, so he's dealing with them. 
So that's why God goes after the Amalekites. But then there's this next question, why the whole nation? You know, mum, dad, it's repeated a number of times. Mums, dads, kids, infants, the, the animals, their pets, goes for it all. Why does he do that? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. God wants them never to come back, is kind of what we've seen. God wants to put an end of evil, basically. You guys are bring evil into, into the lives of, of my, my family. I want that. But then you've got to ask the question, is it over the top that he's killing even the animals? You know, why would you go that far? Well, I think there is another reason. If anything remains as a constant reminder of that evil, if anything remains of um, they see it and they think of it, oh, those were the people who come after us. God says, no, I want to bring you into the promised land. I want to bless you with every good thing. I don't want the remnants of that evil to haunt you or remind you of uh, what was going on there. And I think actually we're a little bit like God in this, in this action of going, I don't want to see it. I don't want to wipe it from the earth, wipe it from my memory. I've got to say, there's nothing in the passage to suggest this, but I actually think we're actually more like God than we realise. Uh, let me show you uh, this house. This house is in Seymour Avenue in Cleveland, America. This is a house of a man called Ariel Castro. You might remember a few years ago, he was labelled uh, America's most evil man. He was uh, kidnapped three young women, kept them downstairs for his own pleasures for about 10 years. And when he was captured, the whole street was amazed and surprised. He got uh, sentenced, found guilty, we confessed. He was sentenced to life plus a thousand years imprisonment. Like, he was definitely the bad guy. But what happened in the street was very interesting. Because the street who'd, uh, you know, normal street, happy street, they said, actually, now that we see this house and now that we know what's been going on, every time we walk past that house, we just remember the evil that went on the horror for those women. They remember how bad it was. So they asked for the house to be removed and destroyed, which they did. The council come in, bulldozed it, bulldozed it to the ground. But then the two houses beside that house, so every day we look at our window and realise we were living next door to this horror. And now even with the house gone, we realise that or we're constantly reminded that we didn't know and we couldn't do anything and the guilt that was on them and how bad that was. So the two houses beside his house got bulldozed. And what they wanted to do is go, we don't want any memory of that in our street. It was a horror to get rid of. So they wanted to get rid of. So three houses were bulldozed and they're putting in a park uh, to bring in some good memories. You know, remember, that's where these girls were saved, not that that's where the the horror took place. Because we don't like to be reminded of that, be confronted by it every day, all the time. So let's move on, in a sense. And I think that's what God is doing here. God want, doesn't want uh, to be reminded by the Amalekites continually coming back. Blot them out. I don't want even a sheep to be bleating in our ears. Go, oh, that's one of those Amalekite sheep. It's like, no, they're removed from memory. That's what he's trying to do. So I think we're actually, we can relate to this because we don't like to be confronted by that sort of stuff as well. Then how does God's judgment on the Amalekites show us how loved we are? 
Because remember, we're talking about a God of love. But when we see how full-on God's judgment is, that he's going to totally wipe away a whole nation, you're not human unless you realise this is very graphic and very confronting. If you've got an ounce of empathy, that you realise, hey, we're all mums and dads, we've got kids, we've got pets, that you sort of go, wow, this is full-on. You can't help but being impacted by what's going on here, that we should be shaken, we should be shocked, if we've got an ounce of humanity and concern in our bones. But here's the lesson. God is serious about dealing with evil. God is serious about dealing with anyone that's going against his plans. He's serious about justice. And we need to listen to him. He's God, the God of the universe. And we need to feel the weight of what's going on with the Amalekites. They've pushed back on God and he's just come down heavy on them. That's his judgment. When we get to the New Testament in the Bible, we see the New Testament is a big warning that Jesus will return and he will return at a time of judgment. See, often we think of the Old Testament, we get the angry God, where lots of blood shed, the New Testament, God of love, Jesus, he doesn't hurt anybody, anybody, he helps people. So, you know, are they different gods? Where in fact, it's the same God that authored the Bible, the same God that we're reading about, Old and New Testament. We see the Old Testament, God's very graphic in his judgment, shows us a real picture on what that's like. You get to the New Testament, it's looking forward, not just to a time of peace and love and harmony, but a, a warning time of there's going to be a bigger judgment, bigger than any judgment we've seen in the Old Testament. There's going to be a bigger judgment at the end time of where everybody's going to be judged, not just the living, but the dead as well. All people throughout history will be judged. It's going to be a bigger judgment even then. So the New Testament's like this, this warning, like, you know, the, the World War II, the planes are coming in, the sirens go off, take shelter, get ready, because judgment is coming. Be prepared. That's what the real picture of the New Testament is. And the New Testament gives us this picture of the judgment being amped up of what we see in the Old Testament. But the New Testament's also very clear on who gets judged. Uh, and it's not a non-encouraged picture. Again, it's a warning in Romans 5, verse 8. It's a verse we pull up quite regularly because it's very clear. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there's a couple of things going on there. While we were sinners, actually, we were on the wrong side of God's wrath. We weren't born into his family. We don't inherit his love from our parents. We're all sinners. And as sinners... We deserve God's wrath, and that's death. That's destruction. But here's the joy in this verse. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? See, the wrath that was poured out on the Amalekites, we go, that's very... It's very harsh, it's very graphic, totally destruct, destroyed them, totally wiped them out. Uh, he'll go on to do it if we read further on uh, in that Samuel passage. He's going to totally wipe out the Amalekites. That's rough, isn't it? But yet that's the same wrath that's going to be poured out on us. 
us as sinners, us as rebels. I'm going to pour out my wrath, my anger, because you aren't in my family. But yet, when that wrath comes down, God says, I, I can't pour this wrath down on those who will be my children. So God the Father asks his son, or commands his son, Jesus, to step in. The wrath that was to be placed on us, think of the Amalekites, think of final judgment, is poured out on Jesus. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just a good man dying. He was taking the wrath of God. And sometimes we, we get a bit blasé about talking about the cross and about what Jesus did on the cross without really thinking the impact of what was going on in that moment. In Jesus stepping into the cross, he's not just an innocent man going to the cross. He's not just God the Father's Son. He's the Son of God going to the cross. But he's actually taking the punishment, the sin that we deserve, the death that we deserve. Did you know, uh, before Jesus went on the cross, the night before uh, he was put on trial and taken to the cross, he was in the garden, he was praying to God, and he prays to God, if there's any way, because Jesus knows what's about to happen, Jesus prays to his Father, if there's any way possible, can you take this cup from me, this cup of wrath? I think Jesus was going to the cross because it's all a part of the plan, it's happy days, I know what's going on. No, he's saying, take this wrath from me. Take this death from me, if at all possible. You'd only say that if you don't want to do it, right? That, that you're apprehensive, you're in fear of what, what's going to happen when God the Father pours out his wrath and Jesus knows uh, what that wrath is like. You know, after he prays at once, he goes back to his disciples and it's night time, the disciples have fallen asleep and he gets up his disciples, what are you doing? You should be praying with me too. Jesus goes back and this is in Matthew's account, uh, the end of the, book, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus goes back and prays the same prayer. God, the Father God, if there's any way, take this cup from me. He repeats it. Word for word, a second time. It's like, just in case my prayer got interrupted, I'm saying it all again. If there's any way, take the cup. He goes back to the disciples again and finds them asleep, gets up them again. A third time, Matthew says, Jesus comes back and prays the same prayer. Why would you say it, pray it three times? Because he knows what's coming. It's the wrath of God being poured out on him in our place. He knows it's serious. God's wrath is serious. Just take this cup from me three times. God says, no, it's either I pour it out on my children, my love, but out of love, I'm asking you to step in. And Jesus steps in and he takes the wrath so we don't have to face it. Father says, I'm doing it for my kids. I'm doing it for them. There is no other way. I'm not going to pour it on my children. And Jesus takes it. He's done it for us. He's done it. Uh, an amazing thing happened to Kim and I uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I should say that Kim's on holiday, she's on the other side of the world, so I can share a story about her uh, today. Probably not the wisest thing if you tell her I said this, but you know, um, she doesn't like the attention, but it's such an amazing, uh, amazing story of love and encouragement to us, um, but now she's away, I can tell the story. Um, a couple of years ago, we had the gala here. It was a fundraiser night, uh, awesome night here for us as a church. And a part of the fundraising was people put up things for a silent auction. 
And in that silent auction, people could bid on things. And Kim goes, well, what can I offer? Hey, I love organising. I love organising house. You should see our pantry, you know, makes any retail store look amateur. Like, Kim's like into folding up everything and it's really good. So I can use that to help people out. So she put her services up to go to your house and uh, come and organise your cupboards and straighten it all up for you and tidy it all up. And uh, somebody bidded on it, won her bid, uh, so she's going to this lady's house to fix it up. Uh, a couple of weeks later, she gets a card from uh, this lady. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if you get choked up. I remember, I remember very clearly. The, um, and the card said, hey, I've, um, I bought this, your services at the auction. I was awesome. I made sure I wanted to have the top bid to do it. But she says, I know, you're always helping people. You're always doing stuff for other people. So... I've bought half a day or whatever you were going to do for me. She says, don't worry about my cupboards. I've done my cupboards. But what I want you to do is put your feet up and spend some time for you. So uh, in, with the card was this bag. Uh, inside the bag was a book. She says, I want you to read a book. Stop, slow down, read, read a book. It's a book about, it's a novel. Read a book. I want you to stop and have a coffee. So here's a couple of sachets of you know, that nice mix-up coffee and here's a cup to do it. And it's like, Kim's like, I, I offered my services, but now they're giving me stuff. They're giving me half a day. They're giving me a book, me a coffee and, and a cup. Like, she couldn't tell me what was in the card. She just read the card, uh, looked in the bag, saw this stuff and gave the card to me. I read it and we both teared up. I just go, why would somebody do that? To like they bought, we wanted to help them, but now they're blessing us through this. That's love, that somebody would acknowledge it and do that for, for, for Kim. But then even Kim goes, but what about your cupboards? And the lady goes like, I've done my cupboards. What about finding a book to read? I've done it, here's your book. What about my coffee? Here's your coffee. What about my cup? Here's a cup. I've done it. I've got it all set up for you. I've even paid for the church to buy your time to do it. Now, it's an amazing act of love where Kim was happy to serve, but to be blessed that way was a real sign of love. Now, the, the analogy breaks down a little bit because Kim likes tidying up cupboards and that, but imagine if you had to do something that you didn't want to do or a punishment that you had to serve. And somebody comes back and says, I've done it. Don't worry about it. Put your feet up. Like, instead of going to punishment, go to heaven in paradise. Oh, but what about my sins? What about all the things I've done? Don't worry, I've dealt with it. Because that's what Jesus is saying. I've dealt with that. I've done it. Just for you. So you can spend time in eternity. It's a very interesting concept, this amazing grace that's been poured out on us. For those who trust in Jesus, for those who believe in Jesus, you've got this gift. It's, it's the, you're no longer outside the family facing God's wrath. You're inside the family being blessed and blessed and blessed through this amazing grace that we experience as a part of God's family. It's so unbelievable in a sense that, I'm not sure whether you know this, but the Catholic Church believe in this thing called purgatory. When you die, it's not just straight heaven and hell. But if you're a good person or you believe in Jesus, um, 
you're not perfect, so you won't go straight to heaven. You've got to pay for your sins a bit. So you'll go and spend uh, time in purgatory, this place between heaven and hell. Uh, so it's not exactly hellish, hell, but it's hellish. And you'll have to spend some time there so you work off your punishment before you're allowed into heaven. And they can't get over uh, how God could just wipe away your sins completely. But that's what Scripture says. Your sins are being totally wiped away. Jesus done it. So I've got a few uh, Catholic friends and they think uh, our position on reading the Scripture is very pagan-like because if it's all about grace and you're saved through God's gift, His love for you, then why would you be good? Surely you'd be good because you don't want to be punished, right? So if you know everything's going to be wiped away, your sins past, present and future are all being paid for, why would you be good? Now, it's a good question. One, I don't think they understand grace, my friends I'm talking about, to understand what that means. But the, the other question it raised for me is, you're right, in how are we using our life? How are we responding to this amazing grace? Do you realise how privileged you are? That through Jesus, you have been given life, true life, eternal life, with him in, a th in heaven, a place where there's no sin, a place where evil's been dealt with, a place of paradise. How are you using your life? For us, are we clinging to that grace? Or are we living in our protective bubble of, no, this is... When I was coming to church this morning, I was thinking, how good is it to live in this country this time of year? It's a beautiful morning. But how much don't I long for eternity? Because this is so nice. Because I'm living in this first world, western bubble, life is so good. But we should be longing for God's judgment, for evil to be dealt with, for all those people around the world, even maybe some of us, who long for his judgment, long for eternity to be with him. And how are we communicating that message to all the people we want to see come into the kingdom, come into the family? We have uh, put together a board over a few weeks about people we want to be praying for, that God will help them to see his amazing love and experience his amazing grace. We're still going to be praying for that for another week or so. But we do that because we long to see them experience God's love. Now, I don't know whether Israel Folau did the wisest thing, just putting up what he put up. It was very controversial. But what he has done for us, I haven't heard as many people talking about God and who God is in my whole lifetime. If you went up to somebody 10 years ago and says, hey, what do you think God is like? They'd just, you know, you're a religious nut. But if you do it now, they'd go, oh, you know what? I think Israel was wrong or he's right or what. Like people are thinking about it now. What is God like? And we've got to show them what he's like. His judgment is real, but his love is even greater. How about I pray, and I'm going to pray that we experience that, but we have a heart as a church to bring that out to our whole community. Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your amazing love. Lord, we confess to you that often uh, we don't recognise it or we take it for granted. We read stories of like the Amalekites and think, how can a loving God do that? But to know a loving God will protect his children. Loving God will remove evil so there will be no more hurt, no more tears. So when we get to heaven, that's been dealt with. Lord, we long for that day when we'll be in heaven with you as your children. 
But Lord, till that day, Lord, help us to cling to the cross. Help us to always be looked for it and never take it for granted what Jesus did for us. Lord, help us to communicate who you are to those around us, to our community, that they need you, not just for eternity's sake, but they need you to find true life now. Lord, help us to show that love. And Lord, help them to have their eyes open, their hearts open, to know you, to see you clearly. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.